seated. That sounds like I'm on now. If you're at home and you can't hear me, Dusty, I'm assuming you're watching, text Roger and tell him you cannot hear me. But I can hear you. all can hear me, right? Okay, so I know I'm live. So let's see what happens. All right, hey, do me a favor. Open up to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 today. And I told Paula the other day, when I dive into a text, it, it's almost like doing a, a, a renovation project. And uh, how many of you know when you um, set a, a goal on doing a renovation project, you have like the big goal, but then when you start tearing things apart, have you ever realized, wow, there's more to this than I anticipated? And instead of one big thing, it can turn into a few different things. Well, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 17 is exactly that. I at first intended to preach all 17 verses, and then it turned into two messages. Uh, can I tell you it's going to turn into three, all right? Um, I, I told Paula, as I was getting into my fourth point, which was today, and there's going to be a fifth point, I, I had already, after just getting like four, my fourth point almost finished, I already had eight pages of notes, and I can tell you, when I get to eight, nine, ten pages of notes, that's already a 45-minute message. And so I had not even gotten into the last point. So I'm like, I'm not going to sit there and try to cram it and just gloss over it, okay? Because here's what, I, I, ho I hope you guys know me by, by now, after 21 years almost. My, uh, my ambition in preaching is not just to get through a text, Okay, I, it's not just to get through the book of a Bible. My my goal of, of preaching to you is that your life is changing. And how many of you know, if it takes me three weeks to get through 17 verses, it takes me three weeks instead of one. OK, and because I want and I believe what we're talking about now, spiritual disabilities is huge. OK. Because whether, whether it's an unsaved person or a believer in a church, there's a lot of Christians who have been a Christian for a long time, but they are spiritually disabled. And that's what we're looking at today. And so I just want to recap um, last week's message to catch us up to where we are. So three points last week. I said the first point was that being disabled is not just physical, but it's also spiritual. Okay. And in our text, we see people with physical disabilities. Uh, Jesus, he's come back to Jerusalem, and he goes to a pool called Bethesda. And at this pool, because they, the people believed that an angel would come down, stir the water, and whoever got into the water first could be healed. So you have a multitude, as verse 3 says, a multitude of invalids or disabled people, handicapped people. And it says that uh, these people were blind, lame, and paralyzed. They, they couldn't see. They couldn't walk, couldn't move. And, and I, I, I paralleled, paralleled that to spiritual. Okay, how many people are spiritually blind? You know, can't see the truth of their sin. How many people don't see the truth that they are sinners, separated from God for all eternity? How many people don't see the truth that Jesus Christ came to die on a cross to die for our sin? And that when we put our faith in Christ alone... We're saved. That's, that's a truth. But how many people are blinded to that truth and spiritually disabled because of that spiritual blindness? But yet, how many Christians are still disabled spiritually? You ever been disappointed so many times you just stopped? How many, how many times we go through a trial after a trial after a trial, pain, 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 and it just cripples us spiritually, all right? It is so easy to become spiritually disabled because of the things we go through, because of the things that happen to us. And so spiritual disability is just as real and powerful as physical disability. Just as physical disability keeps us from moving and going forward, guess what? A physical or a spiritual disability can keep us crippled and keep us from going forward with God. And then second thing I said was that hearing or uh, Jesus offers us an opportunity to admit we need spiritual healing. He asked this guy in verse six, do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? Obvious answer would be yes. 
strange question for Jesus to ask, but I believe that a lot of people, when they're, whether it's a, even a physical disability, a physical um, handicap, you can be in it for so long that that's all you know. And there's a fear of, of like this guy, Jesus wants to know, do you want, you've been here for 38 years, do you really want to be well? Because that would mean something that he had not experienced in 38 years. How many of us spiritually have been crippled for a long time? And I believe Jesus still asks us, do you want to be healed? But yet how many people in our spiritual disability, we don't want to be healed because, well, my spiritual disability gives me a reason so I can be angry. My spiritual disability gives me a reason why I can throw up walls. My spiritual disability gives me a reason why I don't need to, I don't have to draw close to people. My spiritual disability gives me a reason why I don't even have to believe God. And it keeps us paralyzed. It keeps us at bay. And the idea of being healed means I'm going to have to walk into something that I haven't walked into in a long time. And I don't think I, I don't feel comfortable with that. And so Jesus asked this guy, do you want to be healed? And then the third thing I said is that hearing and responding to what Jesus says brings spiritual healing. When this guy, Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? He's like, well, I, I don't have anybody to put me into the pool. I, I, I'm here by myself. I have no family, no friends, nobody. And I can't get in the pool. I want to be healed, but I can't get in there. And Jesus is like, listen, get up, take your mat, and walk. At that moment, that guy had a decision to make. Either this guy is really wacko, or he means what he says. And in a matter of a moment, this guy looks at Jesus, hears what Jesus says, and you've got to, he puts his hand down and he starts pushing himself up. And then he puts a knee down and he starts, healing takes place. You and I are no different. Healing just doesn't happen automatically. It happens when we hear what the word says and we keep taking it in and we just let the word work deep. And as Hebrews 4 says, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It divides joints and marrow, soul and spirit, judging the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You see, the, the word of God goes in us and it works in us, even though we don't know how. Our responsibility is just to keep taking it in, hearing it, reading it, and responding to what it says. And as you and I keep hearing it, we keep reading it, we keep responding to it, and we keep saying, yes, God, I want to be healed, it changes us and shapes us differently. That's how spiritual healing happens. So this, these, this text, my goal is... Going back to the question, do you want to be healed? I can't answer that question for you. Only you can. It's my prayer that you are honest with God saying, I want to be healed. And then it's going, I want to be healed, so I'm going to start taking the word and letting the word work. That's one thing. But there's two more things that we you and I can do to bring spiritual healing. And my, I, I hope that's your goal. That's, that's your, you want to be spiritually healed. I hope you don't want to remain the rest of your life spiritually handicapped, spiritually disabled. I'm sure this guy was, sat there for 38 years. I'm sure he wasn't like, oh, no, I'd like to sit here for another 38. Some of you, I bet, have been spiritually disabled for decades. Do you want to continue to be spiritually disabled for decades more? If not, here's some things you and I can do. Again, hearing and responding to what the word of God says. But here's a fourth thing. Eliminating legalistic, man-made regulations that bring spiritual healing. Eliminating legalistic, man-made regulations brings spiritual healing. And this is what we see now. Jesus has healed this guy. He has gotten up. He's rolled up his, his... I always found that interesting. This dude's been sitting on, sleeping on this mat for 38 years. What in the world would it be so... Why pick this thing up? The idea is, I don't want to come back to this place. I'm done with this thing. 
And he takes it up. I'm not coming back. And, and he's taking it with him. And he's carrying it. And he's on his way. Now, you would think a supernatural healing like that, everybody would have been like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. Dude, tell me, how did, I mean, I remember walking by you. I've walked by you for a long time and you've never moved. How in the world did you get healed? You would think that would be everybody's thing. Not even close. Because now, if you look at the end of verse 9, so the guy's walking with his mat in hand. It says, now that day was the Sabbath. I would underline those words. So the Jews, the Jews is referring to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. The Pharisees, the religious leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. This guy is healed. Jesus heals this guy after 38 long years. And he's finally walking. And the first Pharisee that sees him does not like hoop and holler with joy. Brings down the hammer. Notice it says that the healing took place on the Sabbath. Now, um, I, I don't want to be a bearer of bad news, but the Sabbath is not Sunday. The Sabbath is Saturday. All right? The Jews were, one of the laws that God put into the Mosaic law was that the Jews had to adhere to and follow the Sabbath. Every seven days on Saturday, they were to stop working, okay? The, 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 the Sabbath forbade um, any Jew from working, all right? That meant you, you didn't cook on, on Saturday. So guess when you prepared your meals? On Friday. And the reason why you didn't cook on Saturday is because they didn't have an oven that was an electrical or gas. They had to use wood. So guess what you could not do? Cut wood on Saturday, all right? You couldn't work. You couldn't work your fields. You couldn't do, you couldn't do hard labor, all right? You were, it was meant to, to rest and to honor that, okay? And the reality was even if you broke the Sabbath, you would be stoned. That's how intense this thing was. Now, here's the thing. According to the Moody Bible commentary, this, this Pharisee, the Pharisees weren't arguing to this, wasn't like saying to this guy, wow, you're breaking the, the, the Sabbath because you're doing something really laborious. That's not the issue. Notice he said, you're not supposed to be carrying your mat. According to the Moody Bible commentary, back in, the, 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 in Jesus' time, the Pharisee system actually added to the Mosaic law 39 different laws. You see, the, the Pharisees were like, the, you got to remember, the Pharisees were the, the, the regulators of behavior, okay? They were the, the behavioral police. They were the, 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 the spiritual leaders. They, they wanted to make sure you were living holy. You're supposed to be a godly Jew, and we're going to make sure you're doing it. So here's what they did. They're like, well, the law's doing okay, but it's not doing enough. So we better help God out. And they added laws to the Mosaic law. But they were so dumb. Like, you can't carry a mat. You can't carry anything on the Sabbath. You can't walk more than a mile and a half on the Sabbath. Wouldn't that really stink? You're like going to mom's house and you're walking away. Na, 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 and you're like, oh, man. What do I do now? I got to wait till tomorrow before I can take another step. I've walked my mile and a half. I can't break the Sabbath. Here's one that the, the Moody commentary pointed out was um, they put a law. You cannot tie or untie a knot on the Sabbath. Yeah, 
You see how ridiculous this is? But the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, were so legalistic. They only wanted one thing. We want to manage and regulate human behavior. We want to make sure these Jews are holy and godly, and we're going to do whatever we can to make sure they are doing it. So one of the things was they're going to make sure these people don't break the Sabbath. And so we'll add more laws, these man-made laws that God did not instruct them to to do. It was man-made. And so they came up with all of these man-made legalistic regulations for people to follow. And this guy, after 38 years, has been healed. A miracle. An absolute miracle. No longer disabled. No longer handicapped. No longer paralyzed. And yet the first thing the Jewish leaders do is criticize him. And accuse him of breaking the law. Breaking the Sabbath. These Jews... Jewish leaders were all about trying to hone in, trying to to, to, to reel in the behavior of people. And they thought they knew best. Now, here's the reality that we need to see. It's no different today. Churches, denominations, pastors become the spiritual police. And what we do is we create man-made regulations and try to push it upon the people and mandate it to make us better Christians. You know, Paul, he, the interesting thing about the Apostle Paul was this. He really balanced between obedience and freedom. He, he, because Paul was like, you know, Paul wrote most of the, the New Testament. And when you read a lot of what Paul writes, there's a lot of, hey, do these, don't do these things. Act this way. Don't act this way. He, you could see the, hey, this is what you need, the behavioral stuff to be godly and holy. But on the flip side of the coin, Paul was like, oh, by the way, you are free in Christ. Man, do not let people tell you what you can eat, what you can drink, where you can go. He's like, that's nonsense. You are free in Christ. And he juggled both of these. In the book of Galatians, you see this. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he says, You foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by the means of the spirit? Are you trying to finish by means of the flesh? Now, what is Paul saying there? He, these Galatians, these people in this church started the race in Christ. Great. They heard Paul preach. Jesus Christ died on a cross to save you from your sin. If you will confess him and believe in him and trust him as your savior, you have eternal life. And these people in this city of Galatia did that. They're like, yeah, Paul, that's what we want. And they started off great. But somewhere when Paul wasn't around and he was gone, somebody got in there and began telling these people who started in faith, yeah, faith is good, but you still got to work. You got to believe in Jesus, but what are you still doing to be holy? So you got to start doing this and this and this and this. You got to obey these kind of things. And when if you, it's faith plus works. And Paul's like, who bewitched you? Who 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 confused you? Who who in the world got into your into, into the pie and messed it up? He's like, I'm telling you. He's like, you started out so well, but now you think you're going to get to the finish line by what you do by following works and the flesh. And he's asking all these rhetorical questions because it's, there's one answer. You're not. It's not by obedience to, to regulations and rules and all these things. It's faith in Christ. 
In chapter 4 of Galatians, verses 8 through 10, Paul writes this. He says, formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, isn't that great that you're known by God? How is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Are you observing special days and months and seasons and years? I fear you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Man, Paul's just like, I think I wasted my time with you. Because I, I, I spent all my time and energy explaining the gospel to you, trying to get you to understand that you are saved by faith and nothing else. To live by faith and nothing else. He goes, but now you're going back to those old forces. You're going back to that old way of life. You're going back to the things that enslave you. He's like, you're going back to the things that have spiritually disabled you. Thinking, I'm going to do all of these works things, and this is what makes me right. This is what makes me holy. This is what makes me godly. This is what... The Pharisees were spiritually disabled themselves. They were spiritually blind. But they also spiritually disabled the people. Because they told the people, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to act this way, you've got to behave like this, and when you do this, you don't do that, you don't walk here, you don't go there, you don't do that, you don't tie a knot, you don't untie a knot, you start doing all these things, that will make you holy. Well, here's what that does. It causes people to go, what, what can I do and what can I do? And then all of a sudden, they have all these burdens on them. And it becomes nothing more than spiritual disability because now people are like, well, is that from God or is that from man? What, what, what do I follow? I don't know anymore. I'm afraid to step out. I'm afraid to talk. I'm afraid to do something because am I going to disobey God? Am I going to, am I, am I going to, what is it? It's no different today. We do the exact same things. Maybe you grew up in a church. Maybe you had a pastor say stuff like this. I can remember hearing things like this. We tell people, as Christians, you don't play cards. Because any kind of card playing, well, that leads to gambling. You don't go to any kind of movie that's above a PG rating. Or you don't go to any kind of movies because, well, Hollywood's of the devil. Men and women don't swim together. You don't get tattoos. You don't drink any alcohol. Christians do not smoke. Women, you better dress appropriately. Meaning, some people say you don't wear pants. Or if you wear a dress, you got to make sure it's below the knee. You, all kinds of stuff. How about this? If the church is open, you better be there. So when there's a Sunday morning service, a Sunday night service, a Wednesday night ser first service, if you're truly godly, you'll be at those. And when you're not, you're frowned and looked down on. Well, you weren't here Wednesday night, and well, we had a really special meeting going on. And if you were here, you see, regulations, man-made regulations. You see, here's what happens here. Here's where we need to understand is we have what God says, and now we have what men say. What do we do? Well, let's look at the example of this guy. So at first, in, in verses 10 and 11, the, the, the Pharisees are like, dude, why are you walking? Why are you carrying your bed? You're, you're not supposed to be doing that. And, and he answers them in verse 11, the man who healed, I like that. Jesus is the man, you know, the man. And at first, he didn't know who Jesus was. He's like, this, this guy, he, he, he told me to get up. After he healed me, he said, get up and walk. And, but it says in verse 13, but Jesus withdrew. So the guy didn't know who Jesus was. But in verse 14, and this is what I'll be preaching on next week. It says, after Jesus found him in the temple, he said to him, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. In verse 15, and the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus 
who healed him. Now, again, I like reading a lot of commentaries, and, and I don't agree with every commentary, and I don't care who, who's writing it. A lot of commentaries say that when this guy goes back to the Jews, the, the Pharisees, to tell that Jesus healed him, he was like narking on Jesus. He was like, he was like lining up with the Jews to get Jesus in trouble. I don't agree with that. At first, he's like, I don't know who healed me, but he just said to get up and walk, and I did. But then he, 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 in the conversation when Jesus finds him at the temple, that, that's when the guy realizes, oh, you're Jesus. Oh, I've heard about you. I've, I've heard what you've done, and now you've done it for me. I think this guy added one plus one, and he came up with an answer. And his answer is this. One, I was paralyzed for 38 years. Two, this guy said, get up and walk, and I got up and walked. So the obvious answer is, you guys, Pharisees, never healed me. And your laws and stuff, your rules aren't doing anything for me. But yet this guy tells me to get up and walk. After 38 years, I did. All I know is this guy must be somebody because no man has been able to heal me, but this guy did. So I'm going to do what he tells me to do. And I don't know everything about him, but what he did, if he tells me to get up and walk, I'm getting up and walking. I'm going to listen to him more than you. I see that in what we face every day. You see, here's the thing. We have God's word, man's word. God tells us things to do. Man tells us things to do. The question is, is what do we do? I think we follow the example of this guy. What does Jesus say over what man says? I, 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 I broke this down like this. Here's how you can really work through this if you're ever wondering, Jesus' word, man's word, where do I go? Well, here's three ways to approach on how to approach this thing, how to do this thing. If you're ever faced with a, a wondering, what should I do? Here, here's three questions you can ask. Question number one is this. Ask if it's a biblical mandate. If it is, obey what it says. Is it a biblical mandate? So here's what I mean by a biblical mandate. It's a command. It's God saying, do this. Don't do that. Act this way. Don't act this way. Behave this way. Don't behave that way. Okay? It is God saying it. It is God commanding it. All right? So some examples of, of biblical mandates, biblical commands, it's, it's actually even more than the Ten Commandments. How many of you know the New Testament is full of biblical mandates? For example, Paul says, let nothing, no unwholesome talk, no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, except for only that which is beneficial to others and to build others up. When he says, let nothing corrupt come out of your talk, he's not making a suggestion there. That's a command. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, respect your husbands. Those are commands. Those are biblical mandates. Do not commit adultery. Suggestion or a command? That's a command. That's a biblical mandate. Okay? So a biblical mandate is, is in God's word, and it is, there's no gray area. There's no wiggle room for, well, you know, I... I, I I think I can, I think I, I think I got a better plan. A biblical mandate is, it, it is cut and dry. It is, here it is, and we obey it. Okay? Now, here's the second thing. So, biblical mandate, if there's a biblical mandate, obey it. Here's a second question you can ask yourself. Ask if it's biblical counsel, if it is, then it's wise to do what it says. If it's biblical counsel. Now, when I talk about biblical counsel, I'm not talking about going to a counselor. 
I'm talking about that the Bible, there are times that the Bible gives biblical mandates, commands, and there are times that the Bible gives good counsel, advice, okay? It's not a command, but it's advice. Here's a few examples of biblical counsel. 1 Corinthians 15 says, bad company corrupts good character. That's not a command, is it? But that's good advice. And what that verse is saying is like, if you hang out with bad people, as a believer, if you hang out with bad people, it will corrupt your character. Okay? That's sound advice. That's good counsel from God's word. Wise to do it. 1 Timothy 6 tells us to not, as, as a rich person, not to set our hopes on riches that are so uncertain, but set your hope on God. You see, that's not a command. There's some freedom in that. I can either set my hope on riches and not God, or I set my hope on God and not riches. It's good counsel. Because the reality is, if I set my hope on riches and not on God, riches will fail me every time. But not God. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 11, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are weary, and I will give you rest. That's not a command. He's not commanding you to come to him. He's giving you sound counsel. He's giving you advice. If you are weary and you've labored a lot, you're tired spiritually, come to me. I'll give you rest. That's sound advice. And the wise thing is to do what he says. First Peter 4 says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify the Lord. You see, all of those are sound advice. It's counsel, not commands, not mandates. So when you read through the Bible, you're going to see a lot of mandates, okay? You're going to see God tell you and I to do and not to do a lot of different things. But here's another thing. You're going to read a lot of good counsel in the word. Is that an amen? God gives a lot of good advice, doesn't he? Now, how many of you know you have freedom to listen to God's advice or not? There's wiggle room in that. The sound thing, the smart thing, is to hear God's wisdom, his advice, his counsel, and guess what to do with it? Apply it. Put it into practice. That's wise. So there's mandates. Obey them. There's counsel. It's wise to do them. But here's the third thing, and here's where the, the water gets muddied. Ask if it's a man-made regulation if it is, you're free to ignore it. Ask if it's a man-made regulation, or you can say it this way. Is it a personal opinion? This is where, when I talk about a man-made regulation, personal opinion, this is where people will take scripture and reshape it to make it sound and make it be something to support something I want to put upon a person. So some people, personal opinion wise, will say, you know what? I just don't think we should sing contemporary music in church. Okay, then show me biblically where God tells us that we cannot sing contemporary worship in church. Now, you will find where it says to sing hymns, but also in the book of Psalms, you're going to see, man, you praise God with a drum, with a cymbal, with a trumpet, with all kinds of things. It, it, you see it. Some people will be like, well, you know what? I just think that the pastor should not wear jeans preaching in. <laughs> Show me in scripture where God tells me I cannot wear jeans. See, personal opinion. When it comes to personal opinions, yep, you have one, but guess what? I, I am free to ignore it because there's no biblical mandate to it. There's no really no biblical counsel for it. Now, man-made regulations, man-made rules. Now, here's where so many people, so many churches, denominations, even pastors will take some scripture, shape them in a way that I can try to mandate behavior upon you. Okay? For example... Let's take, um, let's just take tattoos for a second. 
people will say, Christians, you're not supposed to get tattoos, okay? Tell me where I'm not supposed to get a tattoo at. Well, you go back to Leviticus. Leviticus says, do not get a tattoo. Can I tell you, that's the only place in the Bible you read about a tattoo? And here's the thing. If you're going to say that, well, you can't get a tattoo because the Leviticus says it, then guys, you better not be cutting your hair. Because the law tells men not to cut their hair. How many of you are right now wearing clothing that's mixed? Maybe polyester cotton, a wool cotton blend. You better take it off, throw it away. Because in the Old Testament it says you shall not wear any clothing that's mixed with two different linens. You see, the reality is nothing in the New Testament tells you and I that you can't have a tattoo. Now, is there counsel? Where the Bible says, because, because a lot of people will get a tattoo because it makes them, like, it's an identity thing. Well, here's the thing. The Bible tells us that our identity is in Christ. And if I'm trying to put something on my body to make me feel better, to get, make me have a, a sense of worth, to, you know, to uh, make me feel like this is, this is who I am, you're doing it for the wrong reason. But for me, if I was a pastor to stand up here and go, well, the Bible says, you know, you get your identity in Christ and, and not in a tattoo. You can't get a tattoo. I've just crossed the line because now I'm putting a mandate on you that's not there. How about alcohol? You hear Christians say you can't drink alcohol as a believer. Can I tell you the Bible does not forbid you to drink alcohol. Do you want to know what it does say? It talks about being a drunkard. And a drunkard is defined as someone who is habitually drunk all the time. It's an alcoholic. Okay? So when it comes to alcohol, what we do is we take the verses about being a drunkard and we say, see, you're not supposed to be a drunkard. You can't drink any alcohol. That's not what it says. It says, don't be a drunkard. Now, does the Bible give sound counsel about alcohol? Absolutely. Proverbs chapter 20 says that wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler. And anyone who is led astray by them is not wise. So the Bible is very wise on, on, on alcohol. Okay. But it doesn't forbid it 100%. So I can't get up here and say, hey, you cannot drink alcohol. But what I can say is if you're going to drink alcohol, you better be wise in conjunction with what Scripture says about it. And you are free to make that choice. The Bible gives wise counsel and wise advice about alcohol. And in that element, you and I, there is freedom there. But we need to be wise in how we approach it. Ladies, again, both Paul and Timothy, Paul and Peter both talk about women not adorning themselves with like braided hair and gold and jewelry and all this stuff. So now, does that mean that I get up here and, and say, okay, women, you can no longer wear pants. You got to wear shirt dresses. You got to wear them down past your knee. You can never let your arms show. You can't wear any kind of jewelry. No, that is not what that is saying. When Paul, and Tim, when Paul and Peter both talk about not adorning yourself on the outward, again, he's trying to say, you are not who you are because of the way you look. It's about the heart. And they both say, they're like, they're like don't adorn yourself on the outward, adorn yourself on the inward. Because it's about your identity of who you are in Christ. It's not in how, how, what you look like or how expensive a clothes you wear, how many, much jewelry you have. It's none of that. None of that makes you who you are in Christ. None of it. And both Paul and Peter, or yeah, Paul and Peter trying to tell women, you find your worth in who God is, who Jesus is, who you are in them, and not outward adornment. And to take those kind of verses and say, hey, ladies, here's what you're to wear. Again, man-made regulation trying to mandate behavior. You see, when it comes to regulations made by us, a church, a denomination, a pattern, you got to hear it and you got to ask, 
What does God truly say about this? What does the Bible truly have to say about what they're saying? And if you can go to the Bible and you can see, yep, it's there. What they're saying is right. But if you can retake the Bible and go, man, what they're putting on us is it's too restrictive because I don't see it. You are free to ignore it. But if it's a biblical mandate, you obey it. If it's biblical counsel, be wise and follow it. Now, in this vein of doing things that that goes beyond what I think Scripture says, I want to close with the last part of these these verses. And I want to talk about um, the Sabbath for a second. Now, these Pharisees turned the Sabbath into something that it wasn't supposed to be. They kept adding rules and laws, and, and it, that wasn't what it was supposed to be. And, and they, the, the Pharisees deemed themselves, as I said, the spiritual police. They were the spiritual overseers. They, they wanted to make sure the people were living godly, holy lives. And so in their minds, they were like, hey, we know what the law says, because even the apostle Paul says, I was an expert in the law. He knew what it said. He knew it almost like letter for letter. And he was like, this is what the law says. And because they knew what the law says, interpretation is saying, I know what the law says. I know the mind of God. I know what God is about. And because I'm a Pharisee, because I'm a religious leader, because I know all the law, I know what God's about. And I'm speaking on behalf of God, basically. Well, these Pharisees confronted Jesus about him healing on the Sabbath. He basically like, you're breaking the law, dude. And here's what Jesus says. Look at verse 16. It says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. To them, you don't do anything on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Hear that? My father is working right now. And if he's working right now, so am I. Now, wait a minute, Jim. Are you saying that Jesus broke the Sabbath? Nope. Are you saying that God works on the Sabbath? Yep. You want want me to prove it? Here, we do this. After the creation, God created everything. Everything up to man. What did he do? He rested. Saw everything, it was good, he rested. What happened when Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent? They sinned, right? God's rest was disrupted at that point. Because at that point, man was dead. And at that point, God started working again all the time for one reason, to redeem man. He had to because man is fallen and man is sinful. And every single moment, God is working. Tell me this. Is the Holy Spirit never working? No. The Holy Spirit's job is to do one thing convict the world of sin and righteousness. So if you're here on a Sunday or if you were a Jew on a Saturday, is the Holy Spirit not convicting people? Is the Holy Spirit, is God taking a day off and letting nobody get saved on the Sabbath? No. Let me ask you this. Jesus says, I sustain the whole universe By the power of my word. Sustain means, man, I hold it together. He's working. So let me ask you, is God taking off or Jesus taking off the Sabbath in order to let go of everything? No. He's still holding it. He's still working. This stuff blows our minds. But listen, this is why it's so important to take all of Scripture and look at it all the way. And yes, there was a Sabbath. But can I... Can I tell you something? When the church started, when Jesus died on that cross, sin was dealt with. The 
The Bible says, Jesus says, I fulfilled every letter of the law. There's only one part of the Old Testament law that you and I are still obligated to fulfill. Do you know what it is? Love God and love others. But the moral law. The moral aspect of the Old Testament law is still in play today. But the judicial laws, ceremonial laws, cleansing laws, health laws, food laws, sacrificial laws, laws for days and months. Remember Paul said in Galatians, he goes, you guys are obeying days and months and years and holidays and festivals. He's like, why? All of that stuff was met and fulfilled by Christ. So guess what one day has been fulfilled by Christ? The Sabbath. That's why the church does not meet on Saturday, but meets on what day? Sunday, the first day of the week. Why? Jesus rose from the dead on that day. Sunday morning, Jesus comes up out of the grave, and that's when the church says, that's when we're going to worship. And even John, in the book of Revelation, calls it the Lord's Day. Sunday is the Lord's Day. Sunday is our worship day. Sunday is the day for the church. Sunday is not the Sabbath. But yet, what has the church done? We have turned Sunday into the Sabbath. To this degree, we tell Christians, you shouldn't go eat on Sunday because that's the Sabbath. You shouldn't go out to eat. Why not? Guys, I want you to think biblically here. We, about five years ago, I was at a pastor's conference and I heard a pastor talking about how when he was growing up, his mom fixed all of their food on Saturday because she couldn't cook on Sunday. They did nothing on Sunday except sit around because on Sunday, that's the Sabbath and you honor the Sabbath and you don't do anything. You read the entire New Testament. I, I just dare you. Entire New Testament, except for Jesus because Jesus was still fulfilling the, 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 the Sabbath in his time. But you get to the book of Acts and you start getting into Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians and all these, I'm telling you, you will not read once that you and I and that Sunday is the Sabbath. You won't read it. But what you do read is Paul saying, why are you being, why, why are you being judged? Why are you letting people judge you? In fact, here's the verse. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. He writes, Paul writes this to the Colossians, to the church. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. And then look at the rest. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. It's not wearing fancy clothes or wearing different clothes. It's not doing this or doing that. And it's not saying that this day is the Sabbath. And well, now because Sunday is the Sabbath, I can't do certain things. No, not at all. This is the Lord's day. And do we honor God on this day? Absolutely. But do we sit there? Am I going to sit up here and tell you, hey, I got to restrict your behavior on Sunday now? No. I can't do that because the reality is there's nowhere in Scripture, there's nowhere in the New Testament that gives me the authority to be able to mandate your behavior on Sunday. Paul goes the exact opposite. He's like, don't let people tell you what to do. In fact, throw it out the window. You are free in regards to this. Some of you are looking at me funny. I'm hoping, it's, I'm hoping it's stirring something in your head to go, I'm gonna, I want to really find out what does God's word tell me? What is a biblical mandate? 
What does God truly mandate in his word? And if, he says, if that's a mandate by him, I want to do my best to obey it. What is truly biblical counsel? What is the advice that God gives us in, in regards to all of this? I'm telling you, so many of us are still spiritually disabled because we have allowed the things that men and churches have told us for years to keep us sidelined. We don't do some things because, well, that's what the church told me not to do. We don't live certain ways. We don't go to certain things. I can remember when I first became a Christian and I was told not to listen to secular music because secular music's of the devil. So guess what I did? And I wish I had these tapes. I threw away all of my cassettes. I would love to have one of those now. Show my kids. That's what we listen to, man, right there. But I threw them out because somebody told me that's not of God. Yes, the Bible says whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good and pleasant, think on these things. But there is nowhere that tells me and refines me and says, I cannot listen to secular music. There's nowhere that says that I cannot go to see a Hollywood movie. Is there counsel in all that the Bible gives? Absolutely. But guess what? That's where my freedom has, kicks in. I am free to be able to determine, can I or can I not listen to secular music? Should I or should I not get a tattoo? Should I or should I not drink alcohol? Should I or should I not go shopping on Sunday morning? Should I, not Sunday morning because that's, that's God time, that's, but after the service, <laughs> yes, I just put a, that, that my friends, is a, that's, a, that's a mandate. Worship God. That's a mandate, okay? So I threw out the mandate. But if you want to go shopping after service, that's your freedom. I can't restrict you on that. And there's so many man-made things that we put in place and try to mandate behavior. And so many of us are spiritually disabled by them. And I'm telling you, get to God's word. Find out what does it truly say about all of this stuff including what I just said about the Sabbath. I'm telling you, if you'll truly read the New Testament about the Sabbath, some of you will be completely, I never knew that, never seen that before, because I'm telling you, the Bible's very clear about it. If you want to be spiritually made well, one of the first things you and I have got to do is we got to get rid of man-made regulations. And I just wonder how many of you are still bound up by that? How many of you attended churches for years that, and, and, and had people tell you, you can't do that? You can't, you can't look that way. Ladies, you can't wear that. Man, I, I, just, want, I just want you to be free. I want you to be healed. I, I want you to, be, to, to walk in spiritual freedom. Some of you aren't there yet. Amen? Let's all stand. Let's get ready to close.